And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show. Today, my guest is a journalist, a newsreader, and a man who, when you ring his phone and get through to voicemail, you feel like you should be charged four ninety five a minute for the privilege, Mister Michael Usher. <laughs> Is that praise or not? I'm not sure. How are you, Rachel? <laughs> Those dulcet tones <laughs> Thank you. on your voicemail message. Did you? When did your voice kick in? Because sometimes, you know, people will meet individuals in media and you go, oh, well, there was nothing else that you could have yeah. done because you've got the tones to do it. Did you have that sort of voice from quite young? It happened really, well, not really young, but it happened, I guess, when I was about 14. I remember I'd, I'd answer the phone at home and friends of my father would just instantly get into a conversation. Lindsay, we're going to do this thing today. I said, no, it's Michael. It's oh, not, I'm really? not dad. Because my voice just dropped and it stayed there. And I don't know. And I always sounded like dad. So they just always thought I was at the age of 14 him, which I kind of used a few times. But um, Did it drop it from kinda, a height? Were you the kid with the super high-pitched voice or were you always... No, I, no, I didn't know. I'd always, I don't I think I didn't have a super high voice. Yeah. But it certainly got deep damn fast and, you know when all the the, the things kicked <laughs> in around that age in. and um yeah so i ended up with that so. i don't think that well you you were destined for nothing else but this kind of uh, business with a voice like that that's for sure so let's go back to the beginning uh just a little bit after the voice dropped down you finished school in 87 and went across oh well you were living in perth mm. you grew up in perth is yep, that where grew you grew up, up in western up? australia yeah um and so you went to study media mm-hmm. uh at the academy of performing arts whopper <laughs> Yes. It sounds grand, doesn't it? It does sound very grand. What what was your dream back then when you did that? Look, I I'm one of those kids. I knew what I wanted to do, and I know, you know, I was rare among my mates and friends. I just wanted to be a TV correspondent. Did you? Um, yeah, I did. I remember watching, um, you know, the great Aussie correspondents we've had that have gone and worked overseas and uh, school holidays. I remember one particular one. It was when the space shuttle um, exploded on takeoff. Mm. And I can remember watching Rob Penfold, um, you know, delivering these reports back home. And I think I would have been 16 then, trying to remember the years properly. And <laughs> we, we must we'll explain just... <laughs> this. The microphones are perched on – yours is on a pot turned upside down and mine's on a tissue box of some kind anyway. So microphone just went sideways. Back to regular programming now. Um, but I, <laughs> We're going to take a photo of this, right, to back up what oh, we're actually we doing. Sure so we sure Everyone are. listening to this can understand the setup. See the glamours of what we I do know, here right? in media? So Yeah, this is it. It's all the shiny, shiny inside of showbiz. You better hang on to that oh, or you're going to cop it in the I, face. I tell you, the amount of precarious <laughs> boxes and ledges and cliffs and railings and things I've stood at over time so yeah. I can capture history in the background. That's it, right? <laughs> that and doesn't matter what it looks like out of shot. As long as you get the shot. 100%. You've got it. Anyway, we're holding on to the microphone. Yes. No, I, 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 I always... I just had this um, fascination with with what TV correspondents could do and the amazing places they turned up in, Australians turned up in around the world. I think that was rooted a little bit, and I mentioned my father before, in mum and dad who, they they were teachers. So we travelled a lot around uh, when we were young, so lived in Perth and various country parts of WA when they moved around to different postings. And dad took us to England for a year when he did an exchange program and... 
I think growing up in the West when you're a long way from anywhere else, mm. um, they had this great sense of adventure and Dad loved history and I love history and he instilled in my sister and I this great sense of travel. The world is theirs for the taking, you know, yours for the taking. That's go, cool. go and explore it. So, and I don't know whether that came out of um, just living, living in remote places and thinking you've got to keep on going and finding something else or – or what it was, or whether it was just, you know, mum and dad had that great thing and they gave it to my sister and I. I guess that um, serves you well, though, when you later did become a correspondent because you've moved around a lot. Yeah. And that desire to explore and be out and about, because a lot of people can balk at that. Mm. They can go, I don't want to be away from home. I was talking to Ben Fordham a couple of weeks ago and he was saying the whole 60 minutes thing, he realised it just wasn't for him because he just couldn't sit yeah. on plans and planes and be away and he was too much of a homebody. He just wanted to be home all the time. So for some people, it's not really something that suits them. But I guess when you've grown up that way... Yeah, I think we moved schools a fair bit of time in primary school. There was four or five primary schools and different country parts and then back into the city. And my high schooling was in Perth. But, I mean, every couple of years we'd move a house or do something different or – and even when we were in high school, uh, like they took us out of school for three months and travelled to Europe and wow. we got a great exposure. The stupid thing is we never got to the east coast of Australia. I, I was 21 before I came to the eastern states. It was actually, believe it or not, it was expensive to yeah, fly right. and all that kind of stuff. But, that, so, I mean, that's an Aussie thing, right? It's yeah. the same on the east coast. You go, why would I go five hours to the west when exactly I could go right. somewhere overseas in the yeah. same amount of time? So I think Australians have this real sense of wanting to get out of the joint and it's not until we're all grey nomads that we get the Winnebago and we, you know, drive around the yeah. country and see the place that we've been living in forever. Yeah. So you, you said that that kind of struck you at 16. Did you ever have any other desire prior Look, I, to that. I went and did work experience in a law office because I had this fascination with law and, you know, I guess wanting to be a barrister. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't smart enough for any of that. Um, but it was always journalism in some form. And there was that broadcast course that you talked about at the Academy of Performing Arts, which wasn't it, – it, it was a fantastic course, but it wasn't that substantial in terms of the journalism – I thought it would be a fantastic thing just to get going and as a, as a start and then go on and do another degree and whatever else. But I got into it and there weren't a lot of um, – I think there's only 30 of us in the actual unit. Mm. And it was bizarre because part, part of the units we had to do was also doing musical theatre and, and oh. major choir performances and it had to have all of these arts components thrown into the journalism and the media side of it this because exactly of the academy. This is exactly what I hoped for. Yeah. When I saw that it was Whopper, I was like, please was tell me this is you in a top hat with a cane. Believe me, I think the, the Bicentennial Choir I performed in singing in an in, in Indonesian tribute song of some kind. And I still, we used to joke with all the actors and the guys studying musical theatre, like, look at all of you, at least we'll have jobs, you'll all be unemployed actors for the rest of your lives and they didn't understand what we were doing and it was such a weird merge to have that the media course the journalism course inside inside the academy of performing arts but yeah. you know the, there's this theater there and you know there's seats named after Hugh Jackman and people like that and all these you know amazing people that have graduated through there but one of the i remember one of the courses in between the the serious journalism bits that we were doing we had to go and do these um stretching and vocal <laughs> exercises like the musical theater students used to have to do and Anyway, look, it was a it was a colourful couple of years, that's for sure. Did you enjoy that part of it or were you... Loved it. Yeah. I loved it. I, I mean, it's like all part you, of it. I so. feel like there's something in you that I could see you as a bit of an actor. 
You know, you've a bit got, of showbiz thrown yeah, in. Yeah, you you've think? got a yeah. bit of showbiz about you that I wondered whether that might be something that you would. 6pm news, the top hat and cane, do you think? You know, a chorus girl <laughs> yes. in the background? No, no, no. You're dressed up as the chorus girl. <laughs> but it seems like that might be because you've got a bit of flair about you. I mean, you're a serious news journalist. Yes, that is. But there's something in there that I, I wondered whether that might have been something that had interested you. A reluctant performer. Yeah. Was it something yeah. that you ever, did you ever sort of think, oh, maybe I might go down the acting road? Look, I would have looked in school. I did a lot of debating, did the musicals, did the plays. Um, we had a actually a really good drama uh, course at the high school I went to. So there was a lot of that thrown in. So, And I think that all just gave me a, a ton of confidence to stand in front of people. Which, bizarrely enough, I'm not good in front of people. I can look at a camera and be absolutely fine and, and I don't get nervous, stick me in a crowd of people, like shake like you've got no idea. But I had, I had that experience in high school, which was awesome, you know, and I think the debating thing particularly, which I really loved, um, sort of honed the skills for, you know, interviewing and thoughts on the run and the stuff we need to do in journalism mm. um, with a healthy bit of showbiz on the side. <laughs> That fear of being in a room, you know, it's part of I've really enjoyed the process of, go, you know, chatting to people about their careers mm. on this show. But one of the other things that's been great for just my psychological health is realising I'm not the only person in this business who is ter- is fine in front of a crowd of oh. 3,000 people and terrified in a cocktail party. Yeah. Pretty much everybody I've spoken to, bar a couple, feels that same sense of anxiety mm. in an environment like that. People don't get it when I say, I mean, walking into a party or just a oh. social setting of a room full of people, which everyone thinks should come absolutely naturally. I've learned over time and I learned it, actually learned it in school, um, uh, like when I was debating and things like that, because I would hold palm cards and my hands would shake. Mm. And I got taught early on to channel it somewhere else, you know, uh, twiddle your toes. Um, yeah, right. Hold two fingers together tightly so that the rest of your hands don't shake. Oh, that's a and good I'll tip. do that when I go into a social setting too. Mm. You know, I will, you know, find something to do with my hands so that people can't see me holding a glass and, it, you know, my hand shaking. Mm. Um, I do more and more these days, um, you know, it, it, which are fantastic to do, MC gigs and charities and things like that. But they terrify me. It takes a lot to get up in a, in a large crowd of people. Um, and which sounds so silly because every night you're broadcasting to hundreds of thousands of people, but you're staring at a black lens. Yeah. Um, and, lo- I think- and looking through it and communicating with people. And I know that people, I've got to, uh, communicating is just, uh, it sounds so silly, but it's still something that a lot of people look over in what we do is that you, you're still telling someone usually, and I just think one-on-one, I'm telling one person my story every night. I'm not preaching to a large crowd of people. I'm not shouting it. I'm not at a pulpit. I'm not, you know, saying it to a room full of hundreds of thousands of people. It's mm. saying someone, here's my story tonight and this, you know, is what I'm telling you. Well, you might be reading the but, news, but you're still connecting with the people at mm. home and, and, you know, news readers, they do, they do have to have a sense of trust and the only way that you can build trust with an audience is if that person thinks that you're talking to them and there is some kind of relationship even though there's a screen in between. Mm. But I feel like the difference between that and you're right, a lot of people are surprised to hear that anybody that stands in front of a television camera would be not comfortable standing somewhere, you know, in another social setting or something. But the thing that I, for me it is that it's it's the difference between having a purpose in the room and a reason for being there and not. So when you're sitting in front of a television camera, you have a reason to be there. Mm. If you're seeing an event and you've got the microphone in your hand, you've got a reason to be there. You're useful in the room. If I'm set adrift in a cocktail party, I just think no one wants to speak to me. I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't, you know, I don't oh, I know. I walk around the edge of the wall and hide in the corner. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. where I'm more comfortable. It's so silly. But it's yeah. r- 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 front and centre in a social setting is 
awkward for me. Yeah, Peter Burner. I can do it, but it's hard. Peter (laughs) Burner was saying, he's like, at those things, I find myself talking to security. (laughs) I'm like, I'm exactly the same, (laughs) you know, and then slowly slinking out the uh, the back door. So so was that course that you did at WAPA... I don't know whether they still have it. I didn't. Oh no, they do. And oh, look, they it's do? a really it, it's a successful course that um, you know a lot of broadcasters around the place have come out of there. Yeah, right. Um, nationally, so it, it's a really successful course. The beauty of the course was, and, and I think this is what attracted me to it, is it was it, the lecturers all had to be working uh, journalists and or broadcasters. So it wasn't academic. It wasn't buried in you know some theorised version of what mm. the job should be. Everyone had to be working. So the result of that was it was just hands-on practical advice. And they cut the numbers after the first year. They, you know, up front, they said, 10 of you will disappear by the end of the year. It was like Survivor Island of journalism. <laughs> you know, you had to get through the immunity challenges to get oh, to the wow. end because they said that's the industry. You know, you will, you've got to face up to the fact that, you know, it can be short term, you can get sacked, you'll be made redundant, you'll have to move around. You, when a job comes up, you take it and you go, you know, you don't get to select in this business mm. uh, and you grab it and you go. And the beauty of having all the lecturers hands on as working people in the media is that it just gave us tons of exposure to work experience. Mm. So we used to go and... Um, work overnight as a camera assistant at um, Channel 7 in Perth. So you'd knock off from studies all day. Then you'd go and um, sit with, you know, the police scanners in crew cars and carry tripods and gear and work until the early hours of the morning. They paid you, which was fantastic. Wow. Um, but you were there. And from that, there was a few occasions I went out and the cameraman would go quickly, you know, some guy that, you know, couldn't stand and tolerate having a, you know, a spotty teenage student in his car, you know, mm. carry the tripod for me, mate. But a couple of times they'd say, here, grab the microphone, start doing an interview now because I'll need this tomorrow. Like the stuff we're covering now is big. It's going to be story for tomorrow night. They need interviews. Just get, get asking. And you go, oh, okay, fine. The beauty of that was, though, you do a couple of those then slowly, you know, the journos the next day are putting it together, go, well, far out. We got this interview last night and some kid, you know, Michael Usher got that together for us. And then you got a bit more experience and then you got a bit more opportunity to do those shifts. Mm. Um, and I got lucky because I thought I would always go on and do another degree, mm. like go and do a, uh, another, a three-year bachelor or uh, there was a university over there that did a really good journalism course. And... I was lucky and that there were still a lot of cadet ships floating around and a, an opportunity came up at GWN, which is the Golden West Network mm. in um, Western Australia, and they had a really healthy cadetship program. So that's where I went on to after the course and, and applied and got a cadetship. And it was interesting because the, um, the news director who despised me why did he just? Oh, he or she? He, he? yes, he. back then. He. Look, it didn't help that when I first rocked up for the interview, I was in Bunbury, south of Perth, and the station was closed on the weekend. It was on a Saturday, mm. and I knocked on these big glass doors, and this bloke in a flannel t-shirt and thongs rocked up and opened the doors, and I had a suit on and trying to look all smart and impressive, <laughs> like I was about to get on air and you know start broadcasting straight away. <laughs> Complete prat. <laughs> And um, I said, I'm here to see Tom Drool, the news director. Can you please steer me towards him? And he said, no, this way. And this old bloke with grey hair and the flannel shirt and thong shuffled around until he got to this great big office and sat in the great big leather chair and said, I'm him. What do you want? (laughs) It was a bad start. (laughs) It was a bad start. Right, you assumed he's the cleaner. I thought he was the cleaner or the caretaker (laughs) or whatever. 
at the weekend, but he was the news director. And he said something to the effect of, I couldn't give a, well, I'll, I'll swear. Yeah, he said, please. I couldn't give a shit what degree you've done. <clears throat> I don't recognise them. You could have gone and done two more of them. I don't care. He was old school newspaper that had gone into regional TV. And he said, you will learn on the job. So I'll, I'll sort of take into consideration you've done some study. But you start a cadetship and that's now how you'll learn your journalism. So he took me on as a third, final year cadet. So he said, I'll skip out two years. I'll take you on as final year. You've done this degree, which I think is bullshit anyway, but I'll take you on as final. Oh, <laughs> goes again, on to it. I said, I'll take you on as that. So anyway, I got this. I got a, I got a job which was fantastic. I didn't know how to type. I didn't have a freaking clue about half of what I was meant to be doing. And from the get-go, he just said, you're the laziest, you're the slowest we've ever had, you're not going to get this, I can't see you improving at all. And he, I remember one stage he was writing me, because we used to have to churn out two or three stories a day yeah. in this newsroom, and I just I didn't have a clue. I mean, I, I thought I thought I was eaten a bit, but to use an old Bob Catter expression, I think I was all hat and no cattle. But how do you go in there, if you're just new, mm. I don't understand, I'm, I've never done He just done threw me on the road on the very first day. And, and, and you don't get out. any guidance? Here's your camera crew, here's your two stories you've got to chase, come back, they've got to be cut and done. At that stage, it was 5pm in the afternoon. And they've got to be ready. And I'm, and I'm not joking. I st- well, I still today still only use two fingers to type, but I was clunking away on the big old IBM electronic um, typewriters with paper copy, and I, had, I didn't have a clue. So he then assigned a senior um, producer. He said, you've got to sit with him. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. And she'd sort of at least give me the structure of what we're doing and, and you know, how long it had to be and where to put the interviews. I could gather it all fine. Mm. I could bring it all in. But then the putting it together, the mechanics of putting those stories together, I, did, I just hadn't been trained yet. Yeah. And even though cadetship should have meant sort of training, it was, it was just school of hard knocks kind of training. It was just mostly abuse and you've <laughs> stuffed it up again and your usher's not ready again and right. you're not going to make it. And luckily a couple of cameramen helped me out and there was a great old editor, Gridge had been there for years and he'd sort of pull the story in and go, look, change the words around this way. And anyway, it was all crash course learning how to put a damn TV story together. How did that make you feel? I mean, obviously you've survived oh, in I the just, business. I, no, I, <laughs> I just said I've just made a major mistake. Yeah, I'll right. go back to uni and find something else to study and maybe pursue a bit of law or something and I've just stuffed this up. But I, I remember reconciling, at least it's early, I'm young, yeah. <laughs> it, it wasn't for me. Yep. And then he pulled me in on a Friday afternoon and he said, Asha, come in here. And I said, yes, Tom. And he said, do you like culture? And I, you know, I was just so naive. I said, oh, I don't mind the arts. And, I, and he said, no. He said, you're about to get a culture shock. He said, you start in Kalgoorlie on Monday. Oh, <laughs> I wow. said, but it's Friday and I'm in Bunbury and that's like nine hours that way. He oh. said, not my problem. That's where the job is now. No. And what I, what didn't, I didn't, it took me a while to realise it because I was just like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to say no or he's, he's sending me out you know, to be ostracised and banished forever and he's had enough of me. What he did, though, was there was a position that came vacant out there and, in fact, it was Nat Barr. Uh, Natalie Barr was moving on. All right. So I was replacing her and he had actually graded me, but he didn't say that. He'd given me a – he had to skip a grading. I think it went to C grading because it was considered a, r- uh, a rural posting. All I remember is I was earning 17 and a half grand as a final year cadet, which I thought was fantastic and, like – Wow. Mm. And then suddenly he almost doubled it because it was a remote posting and I was suddenly a graded journalist and the guy's still writing me saying I can't type and I don't know what to do and 
like, wow. But I'd got a grading. He didn't, he didn't package it up like that. It was a punch in the face and you're about to get a culture shock and suddenly just move your life. You've got two days to get there and you, I want you filing from there Monday. Yeah. And anyway, I did it. I got out there and What's got What's the grading so. thing? So, well, the, well, I think it's all changed now. So it used to be um, – so you, it used to be three years of a cadetship program yeah. that you'd serve and then you'd – finish being a cadet, you'd graduate to a grading start, then it would go DCBA until you got the A grading. It was just pay scales, but it reflected time served and experience and what markets you'd worked in. Ah. So by the time you worked your way around back into the big smoke and working in a city, you'd hopefully be like on a B or an A grading. Um, I didn't know that. Is that how it's still... No, look, I'd love to know. It was an old um, AJA, Australian Journalists Association, um, negotiated pay structure. So and that's Isn't how that the newsrooms worked, and they used to have quotas like you can only have a certain amount of A grading because of you know whoever cost what or mm. so. But I couldn't believe that I'd, I was a graded. I could actually call myself a journalist, and it was like wow, you know that's pretty cool. But I didn't know how I was going to get to Kalgoorlie and where I was going to live and anything else. So what do you think looking back about that tough love approach? Oh, I th- I thank him. I didn't at the time. I hated the man for years, but mm. um, I thanked him eventually. Even when I was out there, he used to come and visit. <laughs> He'd push me off my typewriter. You're still the slowest. I'll take over your story. But oh, Tom, man. I can know how to write a story by now, mate. And, and out there, you used to have to do, um, uh, oh, like some days, you know, three, four stories as well as file feature stories. And how's this for sounding old school? <gasps> the satellite expenses were too much to file that story that day and send them back to headquarters in Bunbury. So we used to have, have to have used to have to have everything cut and done by about three or four in the afternoon so it would get to the Ansett Courier woman at the airport and then she would then stick it on the plane. It would get couriered to Bunbury and it would go to air the next day, even if it was a topical story. And, and if it was really big and the story was of the day, then the city stations had come in and cover it and they'd and we would step out of it anyway because they would have it all covered and we would just would take their stories. Wow. So... Isn't that and amazing how it's changed? It is, but I'll tell you, I'll t- this is a, a little bawdy story. Yeah. I, I used to take this absolute badge of honour for the, for the almost two years I worked out in Kalgoorlie. I never missed the courier bag. And we had journalists in other places like um, uh, Geraldton and Caratha and Albany, the bureaus, they were mm. called. And some of those guys did. And my cameraman and I, Howard, I used to always take this absolute badge of honour that we never missed the courier bag. And our stories always got to GWN headquarters in Bunbury. And I ran into Howard recently at a, uh, one of the Olympics I was covering. And I said, Howie, Howard, that was amazing, wasn't it? Like, for all those years, we never missed the courier bag, like, ever. And mm. you, you'd race it there. And I remember one day he ran over a dog, but he kept <laughs> on driving. It was terrible, awful, awful macabre stuff. But those stories had to get in that courier bag. As a bit. He said, I've got to confess something. <laughs> I said, I said, do oh. I want to know this? I've used his name. I probably shouldn't have been anyway. Oh, I can blame <clears> it out. <laughs> and he said, um, anyway, this cameraman said, I've got to be really honest with you. I was sort of, I sort of had a thing with her. So she always used to hold the bag up in the courier service whilst we, he said there were a few times we were late, but we used to have a bit of a thing going on. And <laughs> Oh, he was bonking the answer lady to make sure that you made your deadline. <laughs> Whatever works. Okay. The story got there. <laughs> That's great. You so, need those kind of friends in high places. But anyway. <laughs> so how long were you out at Kalgoorlie for? So almost um, t- almost two years. Um, and it was brilliant because um, Kalgoorlie's wild west town. Mm. I think it still is today. We were in a boom cycle. The gold mining industry was going nuts, which meant the town was flush with people and money and stories. And... Um, 
there was amazing variety at out, out there. But as a, as a young person moving out there, everyone was doing the same as me. The nurses, the teachers, the young cops, the young miners, everyone had gone way bush to get their first big experience under their belt. Everyone was earning pretty well. Um, the town was really expensive. Um, I think there were 30,000 people when I was living there, um, which goes with the, the boom and bust gold mining cycle. Mm. It goes up and down. But there was one pub for every 1,000 people in the town and 24-7 pub service because of the mining shifts. Oh, so the wow. town on a Monday morning could be, you know, at 7 a.m. could be as wild as midnight on a Saturday <laughs> night. And it was outrageous. And it was just it – was, it was rough and tumble and hard work and good fun and literally Wild West stuff. So you'd – the variety of stories. I remember one, it was just ridiculous stories we used to do out there. And if it all fell over, you'd go and do a history piece because it was just fantastic history out there. So you could always file a feature <laughs> yeah. story of some kind. Go and get some black and white photos and there's always some old digger talking about, you know, gold miner and whatever, talking about whatever. So you could always get a bit of colour up. But you'd get a call in the middle of nowhere. Um, I remember one night, one of the big mining guys called and he said, get your camera out to the edge of town at midnight. And this one group of miners had got together and had got the shits with the local council who wouldn't build a bypass road. So they just pulled all their trucks and resources and built a major bypass road, not approved, not anything, and got it all done. So we filmed this story all night, and, they, and that's the sort of stuff that went oh, on out there. Oh, that's cool. Uh, you know, the flip side of it was there was a woman who rang me once and said, they're trying to kill my pig to eat for Christmas, my neighbours. <laughs> so I went and tried to rescue this piglet and chasing it around a yard trying to, and that was my feature story for the day it was like god but it was good fun you got it was really good fun that's was, all the part of the rich tapestry of life right yeah <laughs> you know it was it was a really formative couple of years and my goodness me i made mistakes like you got no idea but i was in a town of a whole lot of young people also starting out in their professions doing sort of similar things and i don't know i'm, I'm hoping none of the mistakes showed up but um it was interesting. I mean, but we it's had- a safe environment yeah, to do that. Exactly, and it's you know live broadcast journalism, creating story. It's the kind of thing that until you're actually under the pump and in the moment, and you genuinely need a story, and your deadline is tight, you can't really learn those skills Mm-mm. until you're doing it. But you certainly can't do that in Cap City. You've got to go to places like that. And I guess to maybe at that age, having everybody in a sort of sense of this is where we're beginning the rest of our life. We've all come here from somewhere else. I guess that feels like there's an instant kind of community that you wouldn't get anywhere else. At all. And, mm. you know, and, and it, was a, it was a slightly different time in that, you know, I could ring um, – and because I had no fear either. You know, I had, I, it was for me to absolutely screw up or make something out of. So you'd ring the local police sergeant on a Friday and say, look, I've got no stories at all. He said, well, come for a ride with me. I'll show you some stuff. And, you know, you'd get in his car and there was no – there were no layers of media protection yeah, and PC right. anything. It was – you know, the local – I remember – and this is really dating. Not me at the time, but the way that some of the attitudes were still out there. I'd interview the local mayor who would still refer to the Aboriginals as natives. Wow. You know, and, you know, we've got a problem with this and that. and and then, But then the Aboriginal community was really strong and vocal out there. So there was just always, you know, for, for you think about it, a town of 30,000 people, you wouldn't think there'd be a lot going on. But because of Kalgoorlie's always been magnified in stature because of the size of the industry that floats around it. So there's a lot of politics and all sorts of crazy events that mm. happen. And it, there was always news. So it was a great 
a fantastic place to go and learn. And I was still being ridden by this Tom Drill down in Bunbury <laughs> who hated me to the very end until I resigned. <laughs> so. Did he – have you spoken or seen him in the years in, not, not for years, but in the short years after that, yes. Did he ever say to you, I was just giving you a hard time, I thought it, you were – The closest he came was saying, I didn't think you'd survive. Oh, <laughs> That's he not even it. close. That's but, really rubbish. But he said, "I'm glad you did." So, oh, you know, that's good. I, it was it was tough love stuff, and, yeah. and look, I tell you what, it was a it was a brilliant way to learn. Mm. Uh, but he he terrified me. He had me in tears. I mean, I was times I sat there. I remember sitting out on the curb outside of this little tiny TV station in Kalgoorlie, red dirt on the edge of a rail line. Again, saying, "Oh well, I've screwed it. I mean, I've this isn't for me. It's mm. not going to happen." And that, and I did eventually get to the stage of resigning, going, "Look." All of my friends had done some travel and had a gap year and I'd sort of got into work quickly and, you know, had moved out of home pretty fast and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, no, I need, I need to go and I'll now take the break and or I'll go and do some extra study or something or mm. I just need to sort of clear my head and maybe sort of work out whether this is for me or not, even though I'd had this – I think I'd started to find myself as a young reporter. I, I was really enjoying it. But I still needed a break. Uh, so I resigned from there and – and plus the town was hard drinking and hard living, man. It was a full-on couple of years. It was great. Don't get me wrong, but it was like I had to get out of Dodge. So, <laughs> That's you it. Know. There's only so so long you can do that. So did you take a year off or some time off? No, because then I, I resigned and I, I got two job offers. So one from Channel 9, there was a – a news director that had come over from Sydney and had started up Channel 9, uh, had come to take over Channel 9 Perth, Tony Ritchie. And he had seen some stories that had gone to air uh, on GWN or they'd picked up some of them or something. And he said, look, I've heard you've resigned. Would you be interested in, um, you know, entertaining an offer or coming to work? Did you want to come and work in the city? I don't know what you want to do. So we started mm. a conversation. And then I got a um, – I also got an offer. At, I did apply. I saw um, – the ABC were um, seeking junior reporters to go and work on 7.30 at that stage, the, like the state-based version of it. Mm. I thought, well, maybe maybe that's where I should sort of head with this. Maybe the, the daily news grind isn't for me, but I've got a bit of experience now, so I applied for that. And look, I got, I got through the processes of both and I got offered both the jobs, the one at Nine Perth as a reporter for their news – and then um, the ABC job as well, and went through a. Um, I did it all by phone. There was a you know, interview panel. It was all very formal, and mm. really interesting, and and looking for. I guess there's those. Um, there's the fork in the road moment of your career, um, and I chose the nine one. Um, for th- for this reason and this reason only. By that stage, I knew that I wanted to come to Sydney. I wanted to come to the East Coast, mm. and. I liked what I was doing. I could see the big shiny lights of – and I used to watch the news bulletins rolling in and because and, they'd come in off the satellite and things like that. And we'd, I'd see them. I'd go, God, oh, those bulletins are amazing. And all of the, the reporter lined up, you know, looked like something out of a, you know, an American sitcom or something or other. I, I don't mm. know. I just – I remember being enamoured by the way it all looked and I just thought I really wanted to get to Sydney. You know, I wanted to keep on going and, and that was the best place to go. And I thought that nine, um, you know, would be the best path to that at that stage. So I took the nine job and went there. Do you? So do you often think? I wonder what would. Yeah, happen? I do. It's it's the only. I don't have a lot of regrets, but I have. There, that is that one moment where, you know, at what I was then twenty two ish, um, of had I got into that, where that might have led differently. Mm. Um, 
you know, what I've got into the sort of long form um, reporting sooner, which I've loved in recent years. Mm. Um, There's also not a huge amount of choice in this business. So it's interesting to even have a major choice mm. in your hand at any point. Oh, look, it was just bizarre. Yeah. I remember my mother was disappointed that I chose the, the, the commercial path. I think she sort of saw the, the uh, what she thought then was the cred and the worthiness of going down the ABC path. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was lucky to have choices. You know, what, I'll tell you what I was more lucky to have at that time. I was still coming through when there were jobs. Yeah, right. You know, and there were these young training programs in in – in ABC and in the commercials and cadetships, for goodness sake, in in broadcasting, and they've just disappeared. Mm. You know the opportunities for I, it got drilled into me when I did the the, the course at Whopper. Take the job, take the job, take the job. Don't even finish the course. Take the job. Right. Do not 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 back an opportunity. Mm. It was always very practical, and I think that was just there, like grab it and go. And even at that point, when I still I really 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 wanted to go travelling, I had to have my whole, whole life geared up for just buggering off and taking off and, you know, doing the Europe thing and whatever. And it's just stuck with me of, no, I've got two jobs and I would be mad to give either of them up. So take one and then work it out in another couple of years. Yeah. You know, still young and you can do whatever. So um, how long were you in Perth at Channel 9 before you came over to Sydney? Uh, two years. So I moved to Sydney in late 93 and... I got again. The grading thing was still in place, so when Nine took me on, I became a B grade, and I thought that was Ooh. even more amazing. Like <laughs> B grade, and then I became an A grade, and meant nothing. It was a like grand difference of two and a half grand a year in whatever pay, but it was I don't know. It felt like an accomplishment and achievement, and I think it. And I'll be really frank here. I think in my mind, it, it helped me give me some credibility where I thought my journalism was lacking starting out. So I felt really, I don't know, some sense of career pride and uh, maybe we don't talk about that kind of stuff enough, but I did feel a bit a bit, um, extremely lean on with the journalism um, when I started out, like I mentioned before. But having got a cadetship and going through the gradings, I, I took that as a badge of honour. You know, no, yeah. I've, I've come through and I've earned these things. Well, you've and, worked your butt off for it at yeah, that point and there's it, so. a sense of self... You've got to pat yourself on the back at those moments. You don't need to sit down and, you know, throw a party about it. But there is a sense of, oh, shit, I've achieved this by myself, Mm. by working my butt off and having those moments where I'm being torn a new one by the boss who's kicking me off the typewriter and I'm sitting in Kalgoorlie going, how did I get here with a hangover trying to file a story? And, you know, it gets to a point where you've got to turn around and it's not – it hasn't been given to you for nothing. You know, you've really worked hard to get there. So getting to Sydney, Mm. was that something that you were constantly looking over the East Coast from the minute? you got to nine in Oh, oh look, oh, yes, I'll be honest. Yes, mm. it's a mix of two things again. I still thought I was going to piss off and go travelling. I really did. Did you I, ever? I, have you ever? Did no, you ever I've end just up done doing it through, I've done it through work. work right. <laughs> I've translated all of that still. <laughs> yeah. All I did was keep taking that personal drive That's into it. work and um, – <clears throat> pardon me. No, look, what I did was I – you know, I, 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 I genuinely love – um, TV news broadcasting, and I've just I've watched always watched all the bulletins in the Americans and the British coming through, and I used to sit in at suites in you know of an afternoon when I wasn't doing a story and just absorb it all. And I I don't know a student of the way they have broadcast, particularly out of that big sort of eighties, early nineties, mostly eighties era. That at that stage of watching those big American broadcasts come through and all of their clout, and which has you know changed over the years. So I always knew I wanted to try Sydney. And I didn't – I never thought that I would do it forever. And I put some feelers out and and nine at that stage in Sydney just had this rock-solid line-up like they were the supermen, very few women in fact, the supermen 
of of reporters. Mm. They were all cut from the same cloth, and it was you know Hendo was reading the bulletin, and and they won everything, and I thought I'll never get there. So again, I got to the point of of coming to almost resign. And by that stage, the news director, Tony, who'd employed me in Sydney, had gone back to the East Coast and had um, gone to work in the uh, Canberra Bureau for nine. And he'd put a word into uh, a bloke called Paul Fenn, who was a larger-than-life character who was the news director um, at Sydney. He was the chief of staff at the time, but he'd just taken over from a guy called Ian Cook, who'd run nine for 17 years and you know had it at the top. And Cookie had left and Fenny had taken over. And I'm sitting at my desk in the Perth newsroom, I get this phone call. Is Paul Fenn here? And I said, oh, gosh, uh, Mr. Fenn, how are you? And he goes, I just want to sound you out about, you know, working in the East Coast and, you know, whether you'd you want, want to do that. And I launched into this, again, this friggin' pratty version of some oral CV. Oh, yes, well, I've achieved this. I'm not interested in what you achieved. I know what you've done. And I'm offering you a job, son. I said, well, wow, okay. Well, like when and where? And he said, well, I don't know. We'll work that out later on, but I need you here in three weeks. I went, well, like, like actually pack everything up and go in three weeks' time. And he said, yes. I said, well, can you ring the news director and tell him that? He said, I'm not talking to him. You tell him. I went, well, oh, hang shoot. on. Well, what do I earn? And things like, oh, very quickly, I'm trying to, and how do I book? He said, I don't know. Look, another bloke will call you about that. But is that a yes? And I went, yeah, sure. I put the phone down, you know, and spoke to one of the producers. And I said, can, can I talk to you outside? I said, Paul Fenz has called me. And he said, what did he want? He said, he just employed me. He said, are you kidding I said, no. So anyway, three weeks later, with my blue suitcase and my small red Honda Civic, I moved to the Eastern States and started in the TCN newsroom. Um, that was November 93. Uh, wow. So, and I didn't know, I mean, I again, I, I, I couldn't believe, number one, that I was, I remember driving over the Harbour Bridge and going, I can't believe that I'm about to start working in this town. But I still had it planted in the back of my mind that it would screw up. And I thought, well, I don't care if it lasts six months. At least I can go back with my tail between my legs and say, I gave it a go. And I, I had a crack at it. I don't know, I always had this sort of... That's, a prob- that's probably a pretty healthy way to approach it, actually, because most people come in and it's like, this is it, this is going to be my time to shine, and you kind of set yourself uh, yeah. up an unrealistic expectation. But if you always feel like, oh, I c- if I stuff this up, I can just go back home... Yeah. That's actually free. You know, I actually think it's a beauty of growing up over there because it's like, mm. you know what? I can always go home and, and I didn't, you know, I love the joint. So it's like, I, and I'm happy to do it, mm. but I can't believe I'm getting this chance. And it sounds all very humble, but it was true. Like it was just, if, if you had told me that in 2017, we'd be sitting here doing this podcast about the amount of jobs that I've done since and stayed with, you know, networks and now at seven and had the opportunities I've had and that it kept on going, I would have laughed you out of town, mm. you know, as that 23-year-old kid driving a little bloody red Honda Civic over the bridge going, wow, I can't believe it. I didn't. I remember I didn't even start there and I was driving past the, the station going, oh, I'm actually going to work in there. <laughs> like it was so dumb and naive. That's cool though. That's really cool. The funny cool. thing was though, because they had this really big lineup, as I said before, of um, as all the reporters at the networks in town were, they were, you know, big senior characters. And I remember there's only a couple of weeks into it, Fanny pulled me aside and he said, how old are you? you know, I didn't ask you that. I said, well, I'm 23. And he said, no, you're not. He said, don't tell anyone you're here 23. He said, 28, 30, just stick with that. He said, I can't, we can't have people who are 23 reporting on the news. Wow. <laughs> I, went, oh, I went, wow, really? Isn't so that amazing? It was sort of, yeah. You can't imagine a time now where At they all. wouldn't be across the age of the person that they've employed. You know, you think all of the, the T's that have to be crossed and the I's that have yeah. to be dotted now and that you could have just kind of come across and nobody has a clue how old you were. Mm. That's amazing. So 
from that, what? How did you go with the the move to Sydney from Perth? Did you? It was really adjust I mean, I, well. No, I was really. I was out of sorts for a long time and incredibly homesick and just and I was genuinely overwhelmed like it you know it sounded like some country bumpkin coming to the big smoke but it wasn't that sort of thing as much as um it was a few pinch yourself moments I can't believe I'm doing it but I it was big and overwhelming and it was playing in the first grade and the pressure of that was enormous you know I'm working with you know the people that are, are winning and rating and do not lose and it's everything's immaculate and you know at that time in that half hour bulletin um you know paul fenn was was like a captain on a ship i remember at five o'clock every afternoon hands behind his back he'd patrol those edit suites and the the scrutiny and and the the attention to detail and the journalism and and you know really good reporting that was going into the bulletin at the time mm. um i hadn't experienced it before the, 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 you could not make an error like it was yeah, just right. forget about it um but again learning though and it was a brilliant way to um get going did you make any big errors oh i made one massive one one oh. <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple, but this I remember one stage, Paul Fenny came down and said, um, that story you put to air tonight, I said, yeah, it was an exclusive, and I thought it was fantastic. He said, it's wrong. Oh. I went, no, it's not. He said, it's wrong. And it was to do with um, some interest that the Packer family had, and I had first class, first class screwed it up. What I reported was wrong. I said that he'd gone and bought the... It was just pre-Olympics, and I said that Kerry Packer had gone and bought the new stadium, ANZ Stadium, and that was you know this was going to be this amazing conflict because Packer would own it, but Channel 7 had the rights to the games, and it was all this conflict, and it was going to be chaos. He hadn't. He'd bought the hospitality concession to it or something and was going <laughs> to... Had some management structural rights to it. No, I just got it wrong. And David Leckie, who was the CEO of Nine at the time, just came stomping down and found me. He said, with me now. And he made me sit outside his office and he said, Packers here. Oh, and I, it was like a, it was like this sort of kid going to water outside the principal's office waiting for, you know, the owner to turn up and just pull me apart. So he sat me outside his office for hours on end until they told me that Kerry Packer was playing polo in Argentina and wasn't here. <laughs> but don't screw your stories up again. And I was... <laughs> Oh God, oh my God, that's not. That's an anyway, interesting move. Was, yeah, <laughs> old school, but that, I didn't do it wow. again. I can tell you that for a fact. I so. bet you didn't. So, were you out getting stories, doing actual pieces to camera and stuff, and then coming back straight away? Just, no, yeah, no, I, right? got, I was straight on air straight away, and um, they had a bit of new new blood come through. There were two or three other new reporters who all started, and it was quite a change for that new service at the time. But it go, and I had to work every weekend for a year, so it was permanent Saturday Sunday shifts, so I could get you know crash course and getting to know Sydney and you know absolute junior role. And it was an incredible thing. They offered me to be the Olympics reporter because, of course, the city had won the games, mm-hmm. and it was going to become a full time round in its own right. And um, yeah, I did that, which was a merge of doing. It was as much a state politics round as it was a sports round, as it was, um, you know, a human interests, feature story kind of round. And and I went with it. I really grabbed it with both hands and, and loved it. Mm. So for a couple of years, right up until the Games, I was the Olympics reporter for four or so years. And that got me going and covering, which are things I would never, ever have dreamed I'd, I'd end up doing, of going and covering Olympic Games. And there I, you know, there I am at 26 going off to cover the 96 Atlanta Games as a sort of sample of what we should expect and I, my job was to go there and have a look at the issues that had affected that city of transport and structure and everything else and how it was going to translate into Sydney's preparations. 
Um, and then there was that bombing in the park. So then sort of fell into live coverage pretty quickly and was going live and sort of, yeah, you know, I guess I was able to establish myself as a, you know, legitimate reporter and not just the junior and mm. could get going and was part of the lineup. Do you um, remember the first time you went live? Yeah, I do. It was at um, – and here's an interesting one. This is um, in – it was in Perth when I was still at Nine News and we got a tip-off from a bloke who was in Fremantle Court saying, I'm sitting down here on a DUI charge. He said, how much is a story worth? He said this to the news director because I've got – I'm sitting watching someone and this is going to be big news for you guys. Anyway, the news director negotiated with him. I don't know what he got paid or if he got paid in the end. But it was – Gina Reinhart fronting up to the local court down there to get a restraining order on Rose Porteous to get her away from Lang in the mansion in Perth. And she got it. And all I got this phone call was get to Preta Moore now, which was the big gaudy mansion. Remember Preta Moore? Remember Preta Moore? And they sent the news truck with me and it was really late in the afternoon. And I said, well, I'm out of my depth here. Like, what do you want me to get and what am I doing here? Mm. And they said, just find Gina Reinhardt, and I didn't even know what Gina looked like. Mm. Anyway, they said she drives X car, and I, as I'm talking to them on the big old brick phone, you know those yeah. giant big Motorola's, which was so <laughs> fancy. Um, I saw it coming up, so I grabbed the microphone, and as she had to, she had to punch in this pin code to get into one. Prudemore was a massive compound, and so she was trying to get into the back end, where she'd gone and moved Lang to get her away from uh, Rose in the other part of the mansion. And she had the restraining order coming from court. So she's punching the thing, going on microphone through the, um, through the door, going, uh, Ms. Reinhardt, Ms. Reinhardt, well, what, you know, we understand you've been to court. And she, I possibly can't comment on any of this. But it was on. And they sent me the link truck and they said, just go live, go live now. Wow. So I've got this interview and I'm going live and I didn't know what I was doing. And it was, it was just like, Oh, my God. And then that just became, as we all know, if everyone can remember that, but the circus that that story oh, became. Huge. And then two days later, Lang dies and then Rose is at the um, – Roses at the front gate of Pre de Moore handing out the will and documents and Gina's in the back cottage of the compound trying to sort of secure the family's future and this legal, you know, Nightmare. bizarre drama, mm. this um, epic story that that feud became for years. Bizarre tangent to all of that. Mm. Years later, in 98, I had media mates in Perth who got – they went they went and knocked on the door of, of Pre de Moore and it was still there and Rose was still living in it. And they said, we've got a favour to ask. Could you host Michael Lush's wedding video if we bring a camera to your house? So she, I've got this v- VHS, there you go, of, of Rose going, now, Michael, when you marry, you've got to give the big diamond. <laughs> and they, they just took a camera into her house and she sat at the end of the great big dining table no. with all this gilted gaudiness. Well, she just let them in and said, Let them yeah, in, she sure. loved it. Like, she loved the attention. Oh, and yeah, she, you know, So I've, <laughs> I have this... <laughs> Wedding video wedding of video Rose Porteous. With Rose Porteous hosting the wedding video. Wow. Because that's what you could do. You just rock up and say, hey, Rose, can you do this? But you know the it's interesting- all la- layers of mad crazy. So. The interesting thing, though, about journalism and being privy to those kind of moments is, okay, you're on the big Motorola and you're being thrown into the mm. deep end. But then when you look back, it's like you get to be on in the front row seat for these big big sort of events that happen, whether it's, you know, that that became a news story forever and, you know, anybody that grew up during that time would immediately remember Rose Porteous and that entire situation or, um, you know, reporting from uh, overseas during September, you know, after September 11 or doing the Olympics. Like you are there Mm -hmm. at the front line of things that people talk about for years to come. And that's never lost on me, believe Mm. me. I mean, I quite often... 
I, I never I never let it wash over me. I don't just treat it as another thing. I always try and absorb it. And you know the absurd the absurdity of that being my first live cross to then you know coming live from you know the the, the base of the World Trade Centers collapsed nine eleven to terror events um, you know London and Madrid and Beslan and all sorts of places and then standing in the middle of Baghdad and you know Iraq wars and Afghanistan's and anything it's never lost on me that I've always got this the cliche of the front row seat. To history, mm. um, and I absorb it. Believe me, I don't. I never let it t- treat it as another gig. I, I think I've, I've always still got that. I am just lucky to be here, and lucky to be working. And they are sending me here to do that. And yes, it's on a bedrock of hard work and, you know, built up experience and all that kind of stuff. And and being competitive. Don't get me wrong. Mm. You know, I when those things happen, I want to get there and do it. And particularly the years I worked as a correspondent and based out of London and LA. You know, you've you've got to have that edge to you and get going. But I, I, I'm really lucky, really, really lucky to have worked with brilliant cameramen and who have become very good friends, um, you know, best friends. And it really helps to have someone like that with you, you know, because yeah. you do. You take a step back in between the life crosses and you go, Ben, check this out. You know, look, we're standing on a rooftop. Yes, Arafat's died. These helicopters landing. You know, you're in Ramallah and this thing is going on and you go, check this out. You know, number one, you're absorbing it to then having, you know, to report it and, you know, tell people what's going on. Mm. You're you're really – I've always taken it in, always. And it's good and bad. Some of it's been bloody horrific, but um, you can't help but – I can isolate myself to be professional and get the job done, but you you do get affected by it all and you have to be to to report it. Mm. Uh, I don't think you cannot just be in those positions and be robotic – no matter what the demands are on you to go, keep on going live and to service all the bulletins and you know do all the news commitments and whatever else these days, which are nonstop. Are you talking about those more flak jacket crosses, the yeah. reporting from dangerous the situations? Duck and, the, the duck and weave. <laughs> the duck and weave. <laughs> the stay low. Yeah. How do you go with those? Because I had a friend of mine who ca- who went over as a freelance uh, photographer and uh, he came back broken. Mm. He Broken in a way where he was so addicted and he knew how broken he was and all he wanted to do was get back there and start Mm -hmm. dodging bullets again. He just got – it was this ridiculous push-pull. He knew for his mental health he shouldn't be there. But there's a sense of – you know, it's like the same happens with soldiers that come back from war. You're literally dealing with life or death moments and then you come back and you're like, why do people care about what milk they're buying at the Mm. shop? Like it's very hard to think about reality normally. You lose context and perspective. Yeah. And it takes a while to – get that changed and adjusted. Mm. Um, look, I've come close to that and I think I've just been lucky in that I've been able to pull myself up before that kicks in. The war dog is what you're talking about. Yeah. The war dog reporters who just have to get back into it and do it. And I just, I, again, I come back to that thing of getting lucky. I just reckon I've been in enough places and enough times to have got lucky and not got hurt and it not to go to the next step where you get you know, consumed by it and warped by it mm. and to step away from it. I did it when um, I'd been a correspondent for five years and the last two years of that based out of London were intense and I was away from home. Um, I had to do my tax one year and I looked at it. And in one year I'd been away out of London for 284 of those days. You know, I had a wife and child in, sitting in London and, and I wasn't there for any of that. But, you know, my cameraman and I, Ben, would, um, you know, jump on a plane at all hours of the night. You'd end in Tel Aviv and Ramallah and you'd end up in the Middle East and you'd, you know, Iraqs and things and, you know, whenever terror events happen and you would just go. But he and I always used to talk, you know, like we've had a good run. 
and we'd work with enough people and go into those theatres of, of conflict enough to see the guys that get absorbed and obsessed with it. You know, they're obsessed with um, the issue and the cause, and it's really admirable. But I think um, I'm not that person. And mm. it was, you know, you, I think you've just got to know when things have been good and you've, you've pushed the envelope. And tapping into enough humanity to know, hang on, it's time to move on and see what else is, is out there. Because I think if we keep on doing this, you could then just keep on, you can numb yourself into not realising where there's conflict and danger and no, just, or I will go around that corner and have a look. And you don't know what, you do not know what strife you're going to end up with. You're in other people's countries and other people's hostilities and threats. And um, I, I think, like I said before, it was, I've always worked with cameramen. We've always kept ourselves in really good check and they've, they're mates and that's been handy to have over time. And also know where you're from and where you want to end up. Um, and it's not sort of staying in that all the time. But it must be a difficult conversation to have with yourself because you are having this heightened bucket list moment mm. experience that people would say, gosh, I wonder what it would be like to maybe one day see insert major event here. Or, you know, I wonder, I, I don't know, even even things like being in the middle of a war zone or something is something that nobody really understands. We get all of the media and stuff, but very few people, apart from obviously the poor people that are stuck in the moment living it, mm. very few people from outside get to step in and see that so you're having these sort of experiences which we all ingest secondhand but you're having them firsthand and to actually say do you know what no I'm going to go back to real normal life now like it must take a minute to sort of sit down and actually literally almost have to wrench yourself out of there you do you've got it's almost like you know tipping a bucket of cold water on your on your face or your head and going no We've had a good run at this mm. um, and I've done my job, you know, I've done it and I've done it fine and I've experienced these things and there'll be times when they come up again, but do I want to pursue this all the time and be that, that sort of reporter? No. Um, plus you get numb to some stuff and that's not good. And I, I had a couple, you know, without doing the full sob story, but just a couple of events that were just too emotionally draining mm. and the one... Um, particularly, and we were exhausted. We'd been in Athens for weeks and weeks and weeks on end doing the 2004 Olympics. And then that Beslan school siege happened in southern um, Ossetia in Russia. And I just flew straight there. I, mean, it was, I had to, went straight back to London. Um, yeah, it was all, that's the only way I could get there. So in Athens, London, London, Moscow, Moscow, down to southern Ossetia when the siege was sort of unfolding. And that was just terrific because it was, number one, I was exhausted. Secondly, um, so emotionally, I was, you know, drained and on edge. And then suddenly these school children were being slaughtered all around us. And this gymnasium was being blown up by these Chechen rebels. And it was very, very, nothing was hidden. Like they were dragging the bodies out and the grief in that town was exposed and raw. And at night there was wailing and they had a very quick process of burying the kids down there. So... Um, it was a, a form of Muslim religion they follow down there so it was all sort of buried the kids within 24 hours of them being killed mm. and all of those kids were dressed in their finest it was a very proud country town when they went to school that day so in their best clothes it was the first day back of school and over the summer break the rebels had rigged the gymnasium with explosives and uh, weaponry and all sorts of things mm. and slaughtered them and then overnight you know people were dragging these little children in their best clothes bloodied and massacred into their lounge rooms where they held the body on a table or the lounge for then visiting family and relatives and then they carried them through the streets exposed mm. 
and had to make a new cemetery within hours to accommodate all these dead um, kids and teachers and some parents. And I, I just I remember covering that and I, I bawled my eyes out. I mean, I remember calling back to work in between trying to just work out the chaos of going live and, and having to report it and file it and watching all this unfold. I got really angry for a long time about the way the Russians had handled it because they'd just gone in guns blazing and there wasn't any sort of negotiation. And it was brutal. And I, you know, in between calling back and trying to work out logistics of what the hell we do and going live, I just remember sitting on a curb and bawling, mm. you know, which is good. I mean, it was, it was a good – you let it out rather than bottle yeah, it up. Yeah, of course. But, I mean, I just don't think it's – you don't want to be exposed to that sort of nonstop. And, 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 and I'm not a particularly brave reporter in those conflict zones either. I mean, everybody thinks you are sort of full of bravado and off you go. I'm not. I'm actually the opposite. And when we'd covered Baghdad, I mean, I'd, I got to the edge of Baghdad and said to the crew, we're done. Right? We are not going to go in there. It's been well covered. There's no hero points here. This is too dangerous and we're not going to do it. So I, I called it and rang back in and said, we're leaving. And they said, fair enough. So I'm just going to head south. There's um, other towns we can sort of camp in and still cover parts of the conflict that's going on. And tried to turn around and... As it turns out, we couldn't turn around, so we got stuck. And there was a, a U.S. infantry unit that um, looked after us for a night and surrounded their um, armoured personnel carriers around our four-wheel drive and sort of put a ring around us. So we stayed there overnight until we could work out what we were doing in this, you know, suburb of Baghdad that had been blasted. Got back to the airport, which I thought would be a safe zone, and it wasn't. The American military just didn't want a bar of anyone, so they was trying to push everyone out. But then out of the blue, a bloke I know who's ex-Australian SAS... Um, who was contracting for CNN had turned up to collect a whole bunch of their stars that were being flown in on a, on a plane, a US military plane. Mm. And they got turned around. So he's sitting there with his Humvees going, well, what are you trying to do? And I said, I'm just trying to leave. Like, this war is in full swing. Baghdad had fallen. The statue had come down the day before. Um, I think it was the day before. And I said, but there's no role for me there. I can't get in and I'm not going to get to the centre of Baghdad in our car that's not armoured and everything. Else. And he said, I'll take you there. He said, just wedge the car in between the two Humvees that I've got and just stay bumper to bumper. Do not stop for anything. That's all I'm going to tell you. Do not stop and I'll get you into the zone where other um, there were two hotels that were sealed off where the Western media were. And we just went at full pelt through the streets of Baghdad from the outskirts into the centre of town and um, did not stop for anything. And there were you know, bodies and buses burning and all sorts of things. And Because the day before, we'd gone through this alleyway, and that's when the, the Iraqi military had got out of their uniforms and blended into civilian life. Mm. And um, they were covering, carrying RPGs on the shoulders. It was still military, but they'd taken all the uniforms off and tried to hide within the population. Mm. And that had terrified us. And we just weren't equipped to cope with that you know that's why we tried to turn around anyway so this amazing guy paul jordan he got us all the way to the hotels in baghdad and there we started there we stayed and had to ring work and say by the way we're not leaving i'm here oh my goodness <laughs> let's just keep going live i wasn't even there and i'm addicted well, <laughs> I yeah. just... well you can see from that though and oh. i know i mean guys i met there i mean who then stayed on and really and i mean it admirably covered that conflict for years and years and years and we i mean i dipped in and out um oh, i think four or five times into various parts of Iraq in the subsequent years and back to Baghdad to sort of see what it was like. Um, but 
hat off to the people that stay and keep on covering it, the journalists who do, because it's really hard. Mm. Had you reached out to Nine to come back to Australia or had an opportunity to come back because you'd been away for how many years? I had, I'd been away for five years. Yeah. And look, we wanted to have more family and I just wasn't home enough. And mm. that's as simple as that. And I had to make that decision of do you want to be an expat and stay away forever? And I think the opportunity would have been there. Or, you know, where are your roots and your family and your future and, you know, give up some of the war chasing and bits and pieces, but see what else happens. And that's when we came home. Um, and in fact, I read there was a bulletin for a while called Nightline, which um, mm. I read that for a little while before joining 60 Minutes. Um, and then the 60 Minutes opportunity came along. So, And you were back on a, a plane. <laughs> back on a plane. Back in a war zone. <laughs> Back in the khakis yeah. and the flat so, jackets. So much for just chilling out uh, and well, settling was, down. You know, and, and, they're, they're, and, you know, and I parked in my mind, oh, but it's better, but we're home and based in Australia. And then I just wasn't home. So. Mm. And you were travelling for how long during the year? It's Look, six and a half months-ish, you mm. know, interstate and overseas. And the hard part about those gigs were the long haul. So you'd, you'd do sometimes four, five and six weeks away at a time, which just eventually takes its toll. Mm. And it's, look... It, it, the opportunities were unbelievable and pinch yourself moments of, you know, one intro to the show. I remember staying, good evening and welcome to Mount Everest, you know, with yeah. Mount Everest behind me, for goodness sake. <laughs> and we trekked all the way to the base camp and, you know, I've got 20 Sherpas and gear and half a tonne of gear and we're you know, doing this amazing sort of story from yeah. Mount Everest, for goodness sake. You know, yeah. Come on. And off a boat in the Galapagos where, you know, no boat's been before in pristine waterways mm. and... and well, it's like, I mean, you are working, but you're also on a work, it's not really a holiday because there's no holiday about it, but at the same time, it's the kind of experience that people would ring up Intrepid Travel and say, could you please book this experience? Yeah. And you've had it all booked, plus you're covering it, plus you're getting paid. And it's still a lot of work that goes into it. Look, but- I went into an editorial meeting on a Friday afternoon once and there was someone we were trying to find and they turned up in Reykjavik <sighs> in Iceland. And I said, well, we found them, but they're, well, the producer said she's, she'd found them, but um, they're in Reykjavik. And the executive producer, Tom, said, well, go. Oh, I said, what? <laughs> now? He said, just go. To what, to Reykjavik now to find the person? Anyway, we did. And within an hour or two of landing, we found the person and... You know what it was to do with? It was, it was when Turia Pitt was burned heavily in the marathon in ah. the Kimberleys. So the race organiser was staging another event in Iceland. Right. And she had um, been evasive and not sort of responded to our requests for questions and so had her lawyer. So we went and put some uncomfortable questions to her in Reykjavik. How do you <laughs> go? around and came home again. How do you go with those moments where you yeah. just have to shove a mic in somebody's face? Because I'm, I'm just like too socially aware of awkwardness to be – I just – I was like, no, I don't want to do that because that'll make sense. Even if they're a chump and they're like a dodgy person yeah. that you want – there's something socially awkward about that moment. Oh, look, I, in fact, I did it to Trump on the campaign trial. I shook his hand and said, don't you think it's crazy that you're running for president? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think – I don't think I'm going to be given an Australian exclusive with Donald Trump in the near future. <laughs> he glared at me and walked off. At the time, I thought it was legitimate. Anyway. <laughs> Um, I didn't think he'd actually gone to become president, but um, <laughs> nobody no, did. I don't look, think they're never they're they're awkward and they are the most nerve wracking moments. But I'll say this: um, used correctly, I'm completely comfortable throwing hard questions at someone on the run and chasing them and finding them. If I'm as certain as I can be that it's justified, and if they're evading and dodging mm. very legitimate questions, not a great way to do it. But damn them. Yeah. You know, some people, I'm sorry, will do their damnness to avoid the truth and they will lie and spin. There was one 
person I, we found in New Zealand who is a known um, people smuggler um, with um, through Indonesia, uh, an Iraqi man, and he was responsible for one boat going down that killed dozens and dozens and dozens of children, particularly on this one boat. And um, he has slipped through the system and New Zealand gave him sanctuary because he went off this watch list that he was on in Australia and he should have been arrested and trialled, tried in Australia, which there were charges, there was a warrant out for his arrest. He slipped through and used different names and all this kind of jazz. He was worth tracking down and finding and we've, we've spent a lot of time finding him and we did and threw a lot of hard questions at him and it wasn't comfortable and it was in the middle of a garage like a service station and other people were around mm. and it's always awkward. But damn it, that guy deserved to be pinned down and questioned mm. um so i don't mind using the resources that we've got on the various programs you know as, as journalists and media if if it's completely warranted mm. now that you're at uh, at seven mm. and you are staying put <laughs> well you're still doing a bit around and about but not as much traveling for now, traveling. Yeah. For now exactly <laughs> for now, yeah. not as much traveling do you miss it at all no it's funny i thought by now i might start to and i'm not um that's good yeah. That's real good. I think you sink your t- I've sunk my teeth into different things here. And I, I look, I tell you what I missed. I missed live news. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll cap off one point about going working on a show for 60 minutes versus all those years being a correspondent in war zones and all those kind of things. The one thing that you do when you chase wars and, and do live news constantly is that you do miss some humanity. The, the beauty of long-form current affairs, which I'm doing here at Seven as well, is sitting down with someone exactly like we're doing now and drilling into a conversation mm. that you can lose yourself in for hours mm. and you're actually talking to people. Mm. And I think it's that um, – I got, I got taught something years ago, which is interesting. I've probably listened for a lot of young journos. Just don't look at the wall sometimes. Just focus on the brick. Get another brick. Before you know it, you've got the wall. Focus mm. on the wall, you can get overwhelmed. And working in long form and sitting down those doing is it's like getting one brick at a time. And then once you've got it all, you could build this beautiful wall, the story wall, mm. and get it. You know, sometimes news you race in, there's the wall, we're live. <laughs> Next, go. You know, <laughs> get off again. But I love I, – I, I, all of that said, I miss – I missed live news for those years that I worked on 60. Um, and I've got a good mix here. So we're doing some long-form current affairs and crime shows and doing news and holding down, um, being on the other end. You know, I, I, it's a really interesting thing. The other day, you know, dear old Chappelle in her release from yep. the circus that it was, mm. which I actually defend and I think we were legitimately um, well within our rights to cover it the way we did for the two hours when she was released in, in Bali. The chase back home was a bit crazy. Mm. But it was a circus. And I so appreciate the five or so half a dozen reporters that we had in the field on the back of a ute at high speed outside prisons on the go being pushed and shoved and having to report the, you know, the thing live. And it was all a bit ridiculous and it was a bit of a circus for a while, but we did it really, really well and it was legitimate. And they did really, really well. And to be privileged to sit back, and this is a bit sort of grand sounding, but to sit on an anchor desk and to hold it down and to throw to each of those guys when I know exactly mm. what they're going through and they're being given all sorts of grief and, you know, yelled at and abused and shoved around and having to move fast and getting lost for words and having to sort of just keep it going live, live, live. It's really, really hard. Mm. So I, I very much enjoy holding down a lot of live coverage for Seven News now and I'm loving being back in live news great mm. it's you know well you're using everything you do it's all the bits from yeah. over the years yeah um you know and and being able to pull it up every now and then and go well look hang on let's just stop and think about this for a moment you know a bit of context a bit of humanity a bit of history a bit of 
I don't know, a bit of experience chucked in the mix, which doesn't hurt. Would uh, would 16-year-old you have ever thought <laughs> this is what you'd be? <laughs> no, he would have gone, you knob. That's never going to happen. <laughs> what are you doing there still? <laughs> Haven't I got onto you yet? Haven't yeah, I figured it, it out? <laughs> worked it out. What do you think is the best and the worst thing about the business? I've said this for years, it's never dull, it's always interesting. So that's from the self-indulgent point of view of our enjoyment in the job. Mm. Okay, it's you may not like the subject sometimes, that, that I said that earlier, but you don't have to like what our lead story is or I don't have to like the person that we're interviewing in bits and pieces, but it's always interesting. And I've always learnt a lot through the news and I hope that still happens. And it gets blurred and used and manipulated and fake news sort of tags have stuck very successfully by people like Donald Trump. But believe me, behind the scenes, most people that I work with still go out and try and deliver a, you know, an honest bulletin accurately and the truth. Yeah. You know? And I got taught years ago, uh, there was another news director who I didn't end up working for directly, but I sp- spoke to him a few times. And he said, why do you want to be a journalist? And I said, this stupid answer which was well because i'm a good communicator he said no 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 it's because everyone has a right to know and it's your job to make sure they know the truth which is very worthy and nice sounding mm. it's certainly better than saying just because i'm a great communicator and i want to do it, I mean, it <laughs> yeah. well you've answer. learned your lesson you've yeah. learned your lesson what about the worst thing about the business Oh, it's just too hyper-competitive and it tends to eat itself, mm. you know. It's the sort of rivalry sort of, um, not sort of, does. Um, it, it's an industry that's very, very good at turning on each other. And, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd love to see, uh, it's growing a lot more actually, I think, greater camaraderie amongst, you know, all, you know, commercial government, everyone, you know, radio, print, online, whatever. Um, we've got an industry that's under threat here mm. and shrinking and jobs are being lost and experience you know, destroyed, and we people out there deserve better. Mm. Um, I just don't think sometimes we're very good at sticking together. Yeah, which uh, is hard. I mean, it's a really competitive business, and I don't shy away from that. I've been part of that process as well. Um, but we're all still doing the same thing, relatively, no matter who we work for and and the way it shakes down. Mm. And uh, I think the worst part of the business is the creeping in of influence from all sorts of places. Um, you know, interfering with editorial content, direction, angles. Um, it's not broad, but it goes on. Mm. Um, a few more walls around, editorial walls around journalists and newsrooms would be would be wise. Mm. Well, there's so, it seems like there's so much less cash floating around that people just are willing to do some things that maybe they wouldn't have before. There, there is, but exactly what we're doing now excites me because... The, the need for content's never been stronger. The mm, role of the true. journalist, okay, sure, the, the, the big positions from the large mastheads and Fairfax are shedding experience and journalists all over the place and newsrooms are shrinking, you know, in, in, all, in all manner of media outlets. But content and accuracy and truth has, has there have, of course, there have been times when that's been important, you know, times of war and conflict and everything else and, and real crisis in the world. But I will say that I just believe it is so important at the moment that good content is delivered with accuracy and truth and even if it's opinion i mean great let's have tons of opinion let's let's drive conversation and debate but let's just not peddle lies and spin mm. and and awful agendas that do no one good yeah you know that don't take us anywhere that just keep us stuck in an echo chamber mm. um, of reinforcing fears and beliefs 
rather than taking the conversation on a little bit. And if somebody has an opinion that differs from yours, shouting them down and calling oh, them look, all manner of words on cr- Twitter. Criticise <laughs> them, for sure. But this, this, the culture of outrage that's crept into oh, media, yeah. and, it's co- and it's commentary, it's not based in, in good, accurate journalism, mm. is dangerous. And I think social media has had a huge part to play in that. Also, the fact that, and I'm, you know, I'm certainly being one of those heads for hire that goes and does opinion on shows. It, television is is not set up to have conversations where somebody is stumped or doesn't have an answer. You have to come up, you have to find a way to succinctly sum up a complex problem in 12 and a half seconds Mm. you know so it's very hard when everything in life exists in the gray area but television at least from a commentary point of view and and is all about black and white you are this person that sits in that camp and you are that person are not black none none of it said to a friend recently at my eye Gosh, I've got a lot of grey in my life, and I, that is not a bad thing. Yes, you know it Everybody comes with does. life happening to you mm-hmm. and all sorts of bits and pieces. Mm. Yet you're sort of t- we're drawn into having to sort. Well, where do you stand on this? Where mm. this, this intrusive? Everyone must know your politics. Why? Yeah. Why and where? And <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't care. Yeah. I mean, it's us to have an argument over Christmas lunch over or something like that. You exactly. Know, or, and and it's invasive. This mm. level of 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 uh, you know, talk about obsessions. This obsession with political reporting in Australia has gone out of control at the moment. I mean, mm. it, I get it. It's live. It's constant and it feeds the beast and all that kind of stuff. But I don't think it's taking us anywhere. Mm. Yeah. You know, and and sure, we've got questions of leadership um, going on and, and average leadership, and that should be rightly discussed and talked about. But um, there's not a lot of space for people to get any other message through other than it being all terrible and horrible. No. And, you know. and if we spend all of our time worrying about who's going to be the leader of a political party instead of worrying about mm. what they could get done, it's, we, it seems like we're in the echo chamber of the same conversation yeah. that goes on and on and on. It's like, you guys now have better things to do with your time, mm. you know? Like, let's get on with some shit. Look, yeah, I know, and I've done it, though. I mean, I do, yeah. it, I do it. I pop, I, you know, you do it on the panels. Yeah, and, you and have I go to. live and... and, and, and but. There are some other things. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, All right, we're down to the final five questions. Mm. First, your biggest regret. Regret. Um, I hate. I'm bad at things like regret. I try and blow. If there have been regrets, like (laughs) very good at compartmentalizing my life. Okay, and it's at floor. I get it. I know. I'm trying to work on it. So I probably blanked them out. No, look, regret. Should I have taken that ABC job at the age of 22? I mean, where might that have gone differently in media? It's a sliding know. doors moment It's a sliding for you. doors moment. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's interesting to think about where that might have been. But at the same time, I think, you know, you're sitting doing a job that you enjoy back in live news again, also having that itch scratched of being able to do more investigative stuff. Mm. You know, you're in a position now where it's – it's hard to have reg- yeah. It's hard to have regrets. Yeah, because even the the decisions that you made that were really crappy or the mistakes that you made, you, you're sitting here in a pretty yeah. plum position. Oh, I've done look and believe me, I've done some stupid things in my career and it hasn't all worked. But I've 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 I am so damn lucky. Mm. I'm touching this big wooden table we're on now in my temple. <laughs> um, that you know there haven't been moments where um, the, this career has gone south and gone sideways so mm. it may happen but <laughs> <laughs> use this podcast that's it exactly that exactly oh I'll be tweeting the link to this out when that happens check it out what he said to me only you know. <laughs> two days ago yeah that's it um, what uh, a dream gig your dream gig uh, look it's you know I still would love 
but there's a boring version of this dream gig and then there's a fun and entertaining version. I think given the course of this conversation, you can work out where the second one comes <laughs> from. It's a network evening news, right? A proper big 9, 9.30 bulletin, um, you know, when people are finally sitting down and having a relax. I would love to, I would love to host that mm. and, you know, incorporate some different things in that, like some better interviews and bits and pieces um, that we that sometimes skips over, um, you know, in our local newses, which we, you know, do in every state. But a, a, a solid national bulletin would be a uh, one I'd like to sink my teeth into. Um, probably not going to happen. I mean, these programs are full, the scheduling's full on, on the networks, but you never know. Um, the second version of that is a showbiz version of that ver- of, of that idea. This is the all singing, dancing chorus girls. Yes, here he comes. <laughs> We've waited for this whole episode for him to come oh, out. Just, just give in to my <laughs> to my inner variety version of Michael Usher. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> the variety version of Michael Usher. Oh my God knows what it would be like. So, um, yeah. Maybe something like that. Oh, as long as you're in a showgirl outfit, I don't care what it is. Um, Rach, if it gets to that, okay, <laughs> evidence going to hell, right? I'll be tweeting out the link to this episode. Yeah. Um, so is it a, a big idea that you've yet to get up? I guess maybe that's that's what you've I'd just said. I'd love to work on one of those ideas. Mm. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting. Uh, if you weren't doing this, as in working in media, what would you be doing? Oh, uh, look, I see myself... Um, and it's interesting with the crime show Murder Uncovered we've done here, um, there's an inner barrister still sitting in there somewhere wanting to prosecute people. Um, and I very much enjoy, I don't know, the forensic analysis of someone who's prepared to sit down and be analysed, not setting them up, but just just pulling apart an argument or a position and, I don't know, drilling down, getting to that bit of truth that... that we believe in some of the, the episodes we've had have been missing or elusive. Very much enjoy that. So I don't know. My version, all of that said, I'd end up being more like Rake than I would be anyone else. In, I don't think it would be. <laughs> I just, there'd be some floor or sort of. You'd be really good at that. You would be really good. But I guess you do get to scratch that itch by doing those yeah, more investigative pieces. It so is, it's actually yeah. really good. Um, your advice to people wanting to get into the business? Just tenacity. It's so hard. And I really, really feel for I, I'm loving the role at Seven of, of doing a fair bit of mentoring and um, with you know younger journos and just sharing a bit of experience. I, I have always benefited from having great mentors in the biz and having people just impart you know, selflessly everything that they've learned over time. Really great senior people who've always you know, been really happy to share advice. And I like helping that now, um, being based in a newsroom more, and it's really good to do. Um, but just be tenacious because it's bloody hard. The jobs are shrinking. The demands on these young journos now is out of control. Mm. I, I, I say to them all the time, I don't know how you keep going. They're all... You know, they're starting shifts at 5am. I'm still asking them to go live right up till 7pm. They're starting the same thing again the next day and it mm. is non-stop. And the, 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 you know, the demands of our bulletins these days are enormous. What are, what are we doing? I mean, I, I, this, I, I don't know how accurate this is, but I think it's seven to eight hours plus of news content a day and we're not a 24-hour news station. Mm. Um, it's a lot. These guys work their butts off, you know, for sometimes not a lot of reward. And I... I my hat is off to all of them. But tenacity and stick with it. It's, it's that old thing of ringing and ringing and ringing. And if you want to get that job, there's a news director one day who's not going to sit down and go through 24 CVs that's on his desk that have been sent to him and DVDs and links to showreels and whatever else. 
it's going to be whoever's there at the time going, well, hang on, I remember that. And they came and did some work experience and I saw them hanging around. And mm. the hard part is, and I didn't have it when I, I never thought I'd be able to get near a TV station. I didn't know anyone that sort of did what I wanted to be. I, didn't, I wouldn't even had the, the chops to sort of ring a TV station up and say, can I come and do work experience? And I've offered it a few times when recently we've done some talks um, with some Western Sydney forums. Um, look, if you don't know anyone in a TV you know, setting and you want to be a broadcaster, we'll give you some work experience. Just ring, you know, here's my email, find us and hit, grab the opportunity. That's and great. they have, and they've, and they've grabbed hold of it because mm. um, they don't know anyone in the business. You know, they watch the TV and don't know how to get into well, a newsroom or, or pick up the phone and even think it's an impossible sort of dream almost. Mm. To go, they're never going to take me. Why should mm. they? But I reckon what we do is a great leveller. Anyone can come from anywhere in any background mm-hmm. and give this you know, gig of journalism and reporting a crack. And I love that. Mm. And everybody should be able to do it. Yeah, and, it's, um, and it is often just getting your foot in the door because you're right, the opportunities are often can yeah. be given to people that they're like, oh, we saw that something in that person or that person really wants it or, wow, you've just come in but we can see something. Because yep. you can see pretty quickly in somebody yeah. whether even if they obviously don't have the skills because they're just walking in the door, but you can see whether or not they're going to be capable of it yeah. um, or whether they want it enough, whether they've got that hardworking approach. And, hey, yeah, the tenacity thing. Just mm. stick with it. Don't don't make a nuisance out of yourself. There's a fine line, yeah. but just give it a go because this this business is wide open of what we do, and everyone from anywhere should be able to to you know access it and give it a go. And when you turn up for your first day or your first interview, don't assume the boss is the cleaner. <laughs> don't think the bloke in the flannel shirt is the friggin' cleaner. Really. Uh, Far out. Uh, Michael Usher, I just want to get in a bottle of wine and just do this all day with <laughs> you because I'm just having such a good time. Give me some whiskey and we'll get on with it. So it's great. I thank really like. No, thank you too because I like – this opportunity, We like. everyone loves having a chat and we yeah. do this business. That's the thing. And we, we, we're, we're so boxed up in everything we do in our mm. reports and presenting and all bits and pieces. It's just lovely and I thank you for the opportunity for having the chat too. Oh, thanks. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for listening to my chat with the lovely Michael Usher. He gave me so much of his time and was so professional through every single one of those moments where the microphones fell off the tissue box and the pot, but he just kept on trucking through because that's the kind of man he is. The show will be on a bit of a hiatus for the next three weeks. I will be back again with a brand new episode on August 23rd. So in the meantime, I would love it if you would head to iTunes and leave a review for the show. You can, of course, check out the show notes for each episode at you've got to start somewhere.com. Thank you again for all your support over the last 20 20 episodes. I am really enjoying doing this show and chatting with a whole bunch of people, some that I have worked with before, some that I haven't. If you have any suggestions, by all means, go to the website and send me an email. I've had some great suggestions from people and I am trying to track those individuals down. So leave it with me. I look forward to being back in your ear holes with my next guest on August 23rd. <laughs>